to the Divergent Fitness Podcast. It's so exciting because today we have our very first guest. Um, Sarah is a behavior analyst in New Jersey and an expert on intuitive eating, and she's joining us today to have this really interesting conversation um, about intuitive eating and how she's really blended the science of applied behavior analysis with intuitive eating. So Sarah, can you just start with a brief overview of what is intuitive eating um, and kind of your journey to get there? Sure. So I'll try to keep this one brief. Um, but basically, intuitive eating is really this self-care framework that helps you repair your relationship with food, helps you repair your relationship with, with movement, and it's helping you unlearn a lot of unhelpful things that you've learned probably for a really long time from a very young age about food, about body image, um, all of that kind of thing. So it's really trying to unlearn a lot of unhelpful things that you might've learned in the past through this self-care framework. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of found intuitive eating accidentally because I am someone that struggled a lot, um, years and years ago with, with body image issues and, um, having very rigid eating patterns and never feeling like I looked good enough or I was doing anything that was good enough. And really I, I credit a lot to intuitive eating to helping me, um, just, really make a huge shift in, in my behaviors and not just eating, but how I live my life. Um, so I'm just very grateful for that. And that's kind of where I first learned about intuitive eating. Yeah. So we talk a little bit about, or I've heard you talk a little bit about body neutrality. So what is body neutrality? Yeah. So it's basically having an understanding of like, you know, you're not necessarily going to love your body every single day. And I think that's something that were told, I don't know, either through societies or diet culture, that once you get to X amount of weight or you build this amount of muscle, then you're just going to wake up in the morning and love yourself, love the way you look every single day. And that's just not realistic, right? We're all human beings and we're going to have some days that we might wake up and we just feel like icky or we feel blah and that's normal and it's okay to feel like that, but there's a difference in having a bad day um, and having a bad body image day versus talking unkindly to yourself, right? And that's where the difference is, is you don't have to love how you look or how you feel every single day, but you also don't need to break yourself. You also don't need to hate yourself. You also don't need to shame yourself. And that's really the whole concept behind body neutrality. Right. Yeah. You know, this reminds me of when I was on a, like a bodybuilding program and I got super, super lean and honestly just found new things to talk negatively to myself about. I mean, it was just like, you know, check that box, right? Of like, now I can see my abs, but now my stomach skin after having children looks this way, or this is another thing. It almost feels like a a wheel that you just get stuck on. Exactly. And I think that's a great point because a lot of times we will say exactly like we want to fix our tone, our arms, or we want to have the perfect thighs or the perfect booty. Right. But then we never stop there. It's this vicious, never ending cycle. And we're never going to, unless we accept our body and we learn to accept our genetic blueprint, Mm -hmm. we're always going to find something and our bodies are constantly changing, right? Like Mm -hmm. literally every single day, what we look like today is going to be very different than we looked at five years ago. And that's going to be very different than how we look five years from now. Um, So if we're constantly obsessing about how we look and a certain body parts, it's just setting ourselves up for failure. Why do you think we do this? Like, why do you think we have in our minds, okay, I want to, I want to access whatever thing, what, what do we think we're going to access by having like the perfect butt or the perfect abs, you know, because, and, and is it really about those abs or that butt, or is it about something different? 
I think it's about something different. And I think it's, it starts, unfortunately, at a very young age from, from society and from what's modeled for us, right? Like, I'm sure a lot of us and a lot of your listeners can relate to this. Growing up, um, people that you look up to were probably constantly dieting, or maybe your friends were constantly trying to look a certain way. And that behavior was modeled for us at a very young age. And if you look on any sort of social media or TV or magazine, like what is highlighted and what is um, deemed to be successful is having this quote unquote perfect body image that's probably edited and touched. And, you know, it's very unrealistic Mm -hmm. or you look on social media and you have this person that has a very um, strong fatigue or maybe looks a certain way. And that person's like, oh, well, I just exercise 20 minutes a day and eat this food. And you're like, okay, that's definitely not the truth. But like, that's what's portrayed and that's what's seen to be as realistic. So I think a lot of it is from, again, what we see and what's modeled for us Mm -hmm. and kind of shapes our behavior now and what we're trying to get. But I think, again, what we talked about is it's chasing this never ending. It's just a never never ending race because Mm -hmm. we're never happy, you know, no matter what we try to do or what we try to change, we're never satisfied with how we look. Right. And, you know, I think there are people that can eat generally whatever they want and exercise 20 minutes a day and look a certain way, but they're not talking about potentially just genetics, like this is their body type. Maybe they've been athletes for their whole life. And so they've just like built this physique over time and now they don't have to do much to maintain it. Right. Muscle building is really hard, but maintenance of, you know, muscle mass is, is pretty easy. Uh, surgery, like people are not talking about that, right? Like, yeah, this is how my right. butt looks from all these squats. And it's like, mm, <laughs> what kind of squats are you doing, girlfriend? Because uh, I, you know, that's that's not easy to like get that kind of size, right? So maybe people yeah. aren't being as forthcoming about the other sort of factors. And so everyone thinks if I just worked harder, if I was just more disciplined, if I just had what it takes, right, I could look yeah. like that. And I think you and I have talked a little bit just about like genes and your sort of genetic blueprint and how you are helping people embrace what that means for them. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, totally. And I think that's a really important concept to understand is that you can have 20 different women in one room and all 20 of those women could eat the exact same way. All 20 of those women could exercise all the exact same exercise routine. And the reality is, is everybody is going to look a little bit different because mm-hmm. that's just how our bodies are. Not, our bodies aren't programmed to be exactly the same. And I think if we understand that, and that's not something that's glamorous or something that's talked about a lot, you know, and again, in social media or however you want to, um, however it's portrayed, um, mm-hmm. it's not talked about that everybody's body is different and everyone can move a different, move the same way or eat the same way and their bodies just are, go- are going to look different. That's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that it's that what they're selling is this specific body and that most people, when they can't access that, like abs are not generally accessible to most people without, I mean, period. And if they are accessible, it's going to require potentially a lot of unhealthy really damaging behaviors to get there, right? And so it's so toxic, like we are holding ourselves to a standard that not only isn't accessible, but also is dangerous, potentially. Do you work with clients who are like, do you ever have clients who are trying to recover from like just some disordered eating or? Yeah, so I would say 90% of the clients that I'm working with are 
recovered from either um, restricting eating, mm-hmm. some sort of restricting and then binge eating. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's the exact same thing. It's like they they are trying to strive for this, this, with this, for this unrealistic expectation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of that comes again from what's being reinforced, right? So like accidentally, I think a lot of times those unhelpful or um, really unhealthy behaviors right. are reinforced mm-hmm. accidentally through friends, through coworkers. So for example, um, I talk a lot about how someone might lose 10 pounds, right? And then they get a lot of compliments like, oh, Sarah, you know, you lost weight, you look great. Or, oh, Sarah, um, you know, I really noticed your your arms are getting really toned. Mm-hmm. And that can be really harmful. And that's why I say, like, I don't ever want anyone to con- comment on my, about my body because right. you don't know what behaviors that person had to engage in to get to that point. So right. assume you're assuming that they engaged in maybe healthy exercise. Maybe they first... Um, made some modified some food choices or things like that. But you also don't know if they were going to the gym for three hours a day and eating a thousand calories. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think it's a very dangerous thing to do is to comment on how other people look and specifically weight loss and or weight gain. um, Mm -hmm. Because you really have no idea what you could be accidentally reinforcing. And I talked to a lot of people who their, their, um, their unhealthy behavior was reinforced right. by, by friends, by coworkers, yes. and that's why they continued to do it. And they felt like, well, now everyone was telling me how great I look or, mm-hmm. or all this stuff. And now, like, what happens if I gain five pounds again? Are yes. they going to think differently of me? Right. And they're afraid to stop engaging in these unhealthy behaviors. Mm-hmm. Right. That's so true. You know, it's like letting people know. I think when, when a larger-bodied person engages in behavior to lose a bunch of weight and they get all that reinforcement, it just confirms that they weren't good enough, right? Like, oh, now I've met someone's criteria for acceptance. And even though you're finally accessing all the things that you thought you wanted this whole time, it's so, it's like this really um, sort of painful realization, you know? You know, when I've seen people talk about this, like, wow, I really wasn't good enough for people. And now I am. And then, like you said, there's this fear of what happens when I'm not again, you know, and I have a, um, there's one podcast episode that I did on self-acceptance and the difference between self-esteem and self, self-acceptance and it's similar, right? Self-esteem is like when I'm doing well, I'm like, wow, Amber, you're amazing. You're doing all these great things, right? But what happens when I'm not? And so you're riding this roller coaster, whereas self-acceptance is, you know, I, I value myself as a person and it stays stable. I'm doing well, I'm not, I'm doing well, I'm not like, it doesn't rely, you know, on like, um, performance or success or whatever, right? It's like this, this real constant place that you can go for self-love. Totally. Yes. And I love that analogy. I think that's perfect. It's a hard thing to cultivate in yourself. And I also think it's hard because people around us don't usually model that behavior, right? I mean, it's tricky even as a parent, right? I'm thinking, good job. You did so good on this thing, right? And, and yes, there's this really interesting conversation around like, reinforcing your child's behavior because they engaged in something, you know, they did really well on a test or something. And how does that inadvertently send some message that like reinforcement is only available when you meet these expectations, right? Yes. Yep. Exactly. That's a hard one. Like, okay, how do I, um, how do I reinforce? So I guess probably what you would say is don't reinforce based on like performance, 
reinforced based on like kindness and like other attributes. How do you help clients see other things that are valuable about themselves outside of kind of what society values? Yeah. So that's, I do it a couple of different ways. So usually one of the first questions that I'll ask clients is, can you name three people? Can you name five people that you really admire that mm-hmm. in life, for whatever reason you look up to, you admire their role model. Think of a couple of those people and then write down every single quality about that person that you admire. Mm-hmm. So whether it be, you know, you admire their kindness, you admire their um, determination, you know, whatever quality you would, that you admire about that. Mm-hmm. So then they'll make a list and I say, so where on that list did you comment or did you admire something about their physical appearance? Right. And Every single time I do this exercise, and I've done it probably 50 times, yeah. the answer is always never. Right. That's not on that list. No, she has a nice um, ass, right? Like, that's such a weird thing to, like, you know, <laughs> that's why I admire her, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so that's kind of like one way that I do it. Yeah. But I also ask clients to ask um, to think about how other people would describe them. So, how would your children describe you, or how would your loved right. one describe you? Yeah. Or, you know, um, if, if you're at someone's at your funeral and they're talking about you and all your accomplishments, how would they describe you? And again, on that list, it's never anything about physical appearance ever. That's right. not how people would d- describe you or that's what they love about you. Um, so doing those two kind of exercises kind of really is a good beginning, I think. And then we can dive in a bit deeper depending on whatever else that they have going on. But I right. find both of those things can be pretty helpful. Why do you think we do, why do we, why do you think we overestimate people's care about that? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, why do we think it's such a big deal? And then, like you said, you do this exercise with people and nobody cares about that. Why do yeah. we think that they do? I mean, Amber, that's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. I think it's, it's probably a combination of things. I think it probably is a combination of of what we see and what we absorb and what we perceive as being like the best in terms of what we look like, or these, again, seeing like all these filtered airbrushed edited photos or like being, you know, supermodels or famous athletes, or I don't know, seeing that and feeling like we're inadequate if we don't look like they do. Um, It's probably a big part of it. Right. And again, maybe, just depending on what was reinforced growing up, like maybe growing up, mm. your parents did reinforce um, if you looked thinner or your friends did reinforce that. And then it's really hard to un- unlearn that or undo that relationship, especially right. on your own without the help of a coach. Like it's really hard to work through all that stuff yes. by yourself, I think. Right. Well, essentially you're like a fish swimming in the water. You can't see the water. You're in it, right? And a coach yeah. can can look at you and say, hey, do you not notice that you're swimming in this, like all of this toxic mindset, right? Like, and make you aware in a way that you can't, right? Because they're objective. They can see it from a different perspective and, and really enlighten you from the outside because it's too hard to, you know, it's internalized and it's just such a part of our culture growing up that it's it's so, it can be so subtle. Right. And I also don't think people realize how much time they actually spend like being unkind to themselves or hating themselves for lack of better words. Mm -hmm. So something else that I'd like to do, and I can't remember the name of the website, but I'll, I'll message you when I think of it, maybe you can put it in the notes or put it on, on your accounts, but there's some sort of, there's a website where you can uh, basically create like a pie chart, right? Uh So you can ask clients 
you know, can you name your top five values or the top five things that are most important to you? And they might say my family, my, my job, um, my health, whatever it is that you value. Mm -hmm. And if you put that in a pie chart and you look at all the time and mental energy and that you're spending on on your physical appearance and your health, Mm -hmm. that's going to be like 70, 80, 90% of that pie chart. And when you see that visual, I think it can be really helpful to say like, listen, you're spending all this time on this one value. And then you're not having any other time to spend with the value of your family or your friends or work. And it's kind of this all consuming mm-hmm. um, over you. So I think a lot of times they don't, and that they're like, it's like an aha moment. Like, oh my gosh, I didn't even realize I was so consumed by these unhelpful thoughts. Right. Exactly. So that goes a little bit into acceptance and commitment therapy, which is really interesting. And I definitely, I want to pivot there. Really quickly, I want to share an exercise that I do with my kids um, about sort of just trying to make them aware of that water that we're swimming in, where if we see an advertisement of a famous soccer player who's chiseled, you know, and he's holding like a, a deodorant stick, I talk to the boys about what do you think that this advertisement is trying to tell us? This is how soccer, you know, this is how you're supposed to look if you're a soccer player. This is how you're supposed to look if you want to be successful. This is the kind of product you use. This is what a man looks like right? And so to sort of offset that, well, I think, first of all, it helps just for kids to know advertising is meant to make you feel like you have a deficit. The purpose of making you feel like you have a deficit is to sell you something that will bridge the gap between who you are and who you want to be, right? So just knowing that and knowing that it's not a truth, it's a it's a marketing tactic, right? Is already really helpful. Um, and then we talk about like, do you really have to like, you play soccer and you don't look like that person. Like that's, you know, you're, you're really successful, you know, or, or let's look at other soccer players who are there. Like, look at all the body diversity within the soccer, the, the sport of soccer. Right. And it looks like there's a lot of different ways you can show up and there's all kinds of different men and different bodies and look at really strong men, you know, their bodies are going to look different from somebody who's like a horseback rider, you know, or whatever. So it's just letting them see that, um, there's a lot of ways to be and they're all acceptable, right? They're all valid. And these are just human bodies. And the point of advertising is, is not to feed you a truth. It's the opposite of that. Right. And so like, just, just letting kids know kind of like a lot of what they're seeing is false. You know, it's still hard because like when the boys are getting, they're still getting that messaging from their peers, you know, and that's hard to offset. But I think even just providing one other perspective, just one, right. Allows them to be like, "Mm, my mom doesn't see it that way. Right. It creates just a little crack in that shell that it's like, they don't have to fully buy into it. Yeah. And I think that's so important and so wonderful that you do that with your boys. And I think that's a great message for other moms to start doing because like, like you said, it's, it's not taught, right? It's no one really thinks to to teach it the way that you're teaching it that way. And I think the more exposure you give to them to that thought process, like eventually they can start looking at ad and ad themselves and without you, they're prompting them to say, what do you think this is about? They'll be able to do that on their own and be able to not get so all consumed in that culture. So I think that's a, a wonderful skill for them to develop and super important. Right. Well, the most painful thing about being a parent is that kids don't do what you say, they do what you do. So it's very, very important to work on yourself, right? Like moms, people who have kids, if they are recovering from some of this should come to you because or else they are going to accidentally, inadvertently pass this on. When you have children, yes. you don't just pass them all the goodness. 
you pass them everything, yep. all your fears, all your anxieties, all your insecurities. Now your kids get it or they inherit yep. it. Right. And if they don't do the work on themselves, they are giving their kids all kinds of inheritance that they don't want them to have. Like they're going to hear you saying to yourself, even in a quietest voice, Ugh, when you look at yourself in the mirror, right. Or just a yep. facial expression you give to yourself or don't take pictures of me. You know, when you're at the beach, kids pick up yeah. on that. Totally. And I will tell you during an initial intake, when we talk about their, their motivation and their whys and their values, that is one of the most common reasons that women come to me is exactly what you just said. Yeah. They said, I fear that what my behavior is now affecting my daughter or right. it's now affecting my son. I can tell that they're now picking up on things that I do and I want to help myself to help myself, but also yes. to help my children so they don't have to go through what I'm going through, which oh. I think is, is, is really, really important and really powerful. And it shows yeah. how committed they are to, to their children and wanting to create this, yeah. this better opportunity, this better lifestyle for them so they don't have to be absorbed in all of that. I mean, it's so responsible because a lot of the time, you know, when my child's having a problem, I want to hire an outside person to come, hey, fix my child, they're having a problem. It's harder to look at yourself and say, was there something that I did? <laughs> right? Yeah, That is exactly. a conversation that you have to have with yourself. Like, did I cause this problem or did I, you know, did I do something? Is there something that I can right. be doing to address this problem on my end, right? And a lot of the time there's something you can do, even if it's little you know, to be sure. helping your child be more successful, you know? Yeah, totally. So, okay, let's talk about acceptance and commitment therapy. What is that? Yeah, so basically it sounds like this big fancy um, process, but it's basically um, composed of six core processes and they all kind of work together. There's like diffusion, there's acceptance, there's committed action, there's values, and, and all of these six things kind of work interchangeably to, incre to increase your psychological flexibility. Mm -hmm. So basically to, to increase your thought processes. Mm -hmm. thought processes. Um, we use it a lot in coaching, specifically that acceptance and that diffusion piece, because oftentimes um, those unhelpful behavior, that thoughts that you have about yourself, mm -hmm. right? The way that you look, um, it's, it's a lot of uh, our own verbal behavior, right? Telling right. us that we're not good enough or we need to, and we can't do this until we reach this weight, or we can't apply for this job until we reach this weight, mm -hmm. this weight. So with diffusion, we try to separate ourselves from those unhelpful thoughts mm -hmm. and understand that you can have a thought, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that thought is true. Right. Not true until it then dictates your behavior. So we look a lot about how we can reframe our thoughts, how about we can detach ourselves from those unhelpful thoughts. Mm -hmm. And that helps a lot with, with um, again, our verbal behavior and changing, that's one of the first steps in changing your whole mindset about yourself. Mm -hmm. um, so before we move on to another part of ACT, I want you to share with me, what's your favorite diffusion technique that you use for yourself? <laughs> for myself yeah. is definitely like singing an unhelpful thought to a silly song. Okay. So <laughs> yes. I always pick a Taylor Swift song and I always had the unhelpful thought to the jingle of a, of a Taylor Swift song and it yes. makes me laugh. Every single time. Yes. <laughs> That's my favorite. I would probably say singing or talking in a funny voice. Like um, I was talking with a colleague once and having a hard time and she was like, come on, use your diffusion. And I was like, I suck at everything, right? You just like, you know, <laughs> or I suck at everything. It just, it, you can't help but then feel separated from that thought, right? And it shifts you yeah. a little bit that you can now see it like, okay, you know, you can come at it from another angle and use more. Um, yes 
use language that's more helpful. You know, yes, totally. I think sometimes, so here's a tricky thing that I run into with my clients is that a lot of people think unhelpful language or like um, negative self-talk is actually effective. They think if I'm nice to myself, I'm going to be a slug. I'm not going to do anything, right? Like if I beat myself yeah. in, up enough, that's when I'm like, fine, I'll do it. And they they actually go and they they do the thing that they've been beating themselves up about. What what are your thoughts on that? Do your clients also have that same belief about themselves? Yes, totally. And they use that unhelpful thought as almost like this motivation in some way. Is yes. like if I'm really unkind to myself, then I'll just get up and, and do whatever I want to do or make this change. Yes. Um yes. it's so like the, they make their internal head so aversive, right? Mm-hmm. And then escaping from that is reinforcing. It's, yes. it's like a negative reinforcement sort of, uh, you know, protocol essentially, right? Where it's like, this is so uncomfortable being inside my head. Right. That then I'm going to do this thing. But what ends up yes. really happening? I mean, it's just so harmful in the in the long run. Like, I mean, think about it. Who wants to spend their whole life engaging in like negative reinforcement, like just engaging in behaviors because you want to get out of your own unhelpful thoughts, right. you know? And it's usually not effective in the long term. Usually that will be effective strategy for a couple of days, a couple of weeks, but eventually you're just going to have so many unhelpful thoughts that you just don't want to do anything. So like maybe that motivation, it'll motivate you for a little bit, but eventually it's going to, it's going to have the opposite effect and it's going to be stopping you from things that you really value. Right. So what ends up happening is like, let's say I tell myself, I can't follow through on anything. You know, I, I, I'm bad at everything and I'm, I'm ugly and worthless. Like, I don't, why is negative self-talk so mean? I don't know. But usually that's where our brains go is like, I don't deserve to breathe air. You know, it's not, it's, it's just so excessive. And so let's say, okay, I'm like, no, because there's a part of you that's like, no, that's not true. That's not true. That that's the part that wants to fight against that. That wants to escape from that, right? Like, I'm going to show you, you know, I'm going to engage in this behavior. And then you do, but what happens usually with, with a lot of my clients is they want to go from like where they are now to like perfection tomorrow, right? Because they want oh, that yeah. voice to be so quiet that they look, I'm right. doing everything I'm supposed to do. I'm meeting all the expectations, voice, you can't say anything to me anymore, but it's hard to maintain that, right? It's hard to sustain that kind of activity over time. So then when they do fall off, they're like, believing that voice like that's the most sad thing when I work with clients is that they usually believe all of that stuff about themselves like they thought yeah yeah I just I I'm bad at it I can't do anything I can't follow through I can't whatever right they think that's a truth because that voice is like see see you didn't do it right and yeah also be like the self-fulfilling prophecy right so they can tell themselves like I'm never going to be able to follow through on anything. Like I'll start it, but I'm never going to be able to follow through. And then if they don't follow through, it's like, see, I knew I wouldn't be able to do it. Right. You know, it's like this setting yourself up for this, this failure basically. Right. Right. Exactly. And I wonder if when they're creating goals, you know, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this a little bit, but creating goals that make it impossible for you to be successful, right. Or, or make it really challenging or having a really strong focus on outcome goals. Like how do you help your clients create goals that you're pretty sure they're going to be 100%? I mean, you know, really close, right? When we're creating goals with, you know, kiddos with autism, we're thinking, I I really want it to be just above your level of challenge, right? So I want to pick something that's going to maybe stretch you a little bit, but I'm pretty sure you're going to be successful so that we don't reinforce 
those beliefs you have about yourself. You know, we can see, you can see yourself winning. How do you work with clients to create goals and how do you try to create goals that shift the focus from an aesthetic perspective to a different perspective? Yeah. So I can approach that. The way we create goals is typically always referring back to like, okay, what is a big long-term goal? Like, What do you want to get most out of the coaching session? And then we'll break that down into smaller steps during each individual coaching session. Mm-hmm. And usually what I do, or what I always do at the end of coaching sessions is when we recap and we set the goal for the next week, mm-hmm. but I says confidence level. So I say, okay, on a scale of one to 10, how confident are you that you can reach this goal? Mm-hmm. And clients are honest. So if they say, you know, I feel like I'm at a six or I feel like I'm at a nine. And then if they say, oh, I feel like I'm at a six, one thing I like to do is like, okay, what, what modification or what change can we make so that you feel like you're at a nine or a 10 for next mm-hmm. week? And that opens up a whole other conversation of like, well, this barrier might come to place or this might happen. And we can say, okay, maybe do we need to look at the goal and modify a little bit mm-hmm. um, having these having these considerations? So that can be really helpful, but like using kind of like a roller method to see where the client's at. Right. And if maybe we can then modify the goal, but that's different than me saying like, no, I think that goal is kind of a stretch. Maybe we should step it back a little bit. Like it puts the autonomy back in the client and they can kind of self-reflect and say, oh, you know, because I have these barriers, maybe it is better if I just set this goal and we're working towards that together versus Mm -hmm. me telling them like that goal's terrible. You know, you're never going to accomplish it. Right. Yes. Tell me, give, give me some examples of goals that you would use that are not aesthetic based that you are, that, that you highlight for clients to try and kind of shift that perspective? Sure. So I'm trying to think of what goals we just worked on now. So I have clients that want to um, work on reducing certain behaviors. So a lot of clients want to reduce body checking behavior. Mm -hmm. So looking in the mirror Mm -hmm. and they're then going off on five minute tangents about all the things that they hate about themselves Mm -hmm. or constantly pinching parts of their bodies that they don't like. So maybe their stomach or their arms or things like that. Mm-hmm. So what we'll do is take a baseline and say, okay, how many times a day do you engage in this body checking behavior? And then one of our goals might be, okay, what replacement behavior can we engage in to body checking? And let's set a goal to reduce that that baseline if it was happening 60 times a day. Like what's a reasonable baseline that we can engage in and you can take that on for next week. Right. So that's one non-aesthetic goal that we look at, but the behavior that we want to reduce that will that will help us with our ultimate end goal right and I know you've mentioned also goals like um you know being able to run around with grandkids being able to like get on a ride at Six Flags you know things that make their lives more accessible you know like movement how can we increase your movement in in a way that you love you know it's not going to feel punishing and it's not attached to some specific aesthetic outcome Totally. And yeah, I should have mentioned that earlier. So one of the first things that I talk about with clients is if I have a client, a potential client come to me and say, my main goal was weight loss. Mm -hmm. Like that's all I care about. Mm -hmm. Um, So in my coaching, in my coaching sessions, we don't ever focus on weight loss. We don't look at the scale. We don't focus on the number on the scale ever. Mm -hmm. Um, However, I also wouldn't dismiss that client and say, oh, weight loss isn't my thing. Go find another coach. Mm -hmm. But I will have that conversation and say, what do you value about weight loss or what is important to you about losing weight? Right. right. Because it usually, and I feel like any coach should ask that question anyway, because if someone says they want to lose weight, we don't just stop there. We need to know right. what, what the value about losing weight. And, yeah. and like you said, it's usually something like, well, I want to be able to walk around my neighborhood without getting tired, or I want to be able to walk my dog or play with my grandchildren or 
run a 5k, right? So we can work on those goals um, without having to ever step on a scale, right? We can work on walking for five minutes or walking for 10 minutes, or um, if they say they want to, you know, increase the number of vegetables they eat, like, sure, we can work on how can we increase more fruits or more vegetables without ever having to look at the scale, like the scale doesn't matter. We can still work on those goals. Right, exactly. And you're still making progress in a way that's valuable. And making progress on the scale doesn't necessarily equate to health. Like if I lost weight, I might be no more able to run a 5K than I was before. Like weight loss doesn't automatically equal health. And I think you've talked about that before. Like sometimes in your life when you've been your leanest, you were the least healthy because like you, because of anxiety or being really busy in your life or just having too much going on and the way your body was coping with that was weight loss. But people see that and what do they think? You know, yeah, they're like, exactly. oh, you yeah, they're so good. And you're like, I'm really struggling, you know? Yeah. I even think back to most recently, um, I was supposed to get married in 20, in May of 2020. Right. And we all know some COVID was first came around. It was, everything was shut down and my wedding was obviously postponed and we postponed it to that August thinking like, oh, there's no way the pandemic's going to be around in August. Right. Like jokes on us. Mm-hmm. Um, so August came around and we decided to have the wedding anyway. We had a small wedding with like 10 people there. And I remember posting pictures on Facebook and a lot, and I was really skinny at that point. Like, I don't even know what my weight was, but I can tell you it was probably 10 pounds less than I weigh now. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't because I was eating super healthy or extra. I was filled with stress and anxiety that I physically couldn't let myself eat. Like I was mm-hmm. constantly thinking about the, the virus and the wedding and, and all these other things. And people were like, Oh, you look so great. You look so skinny. You look so beautiful. And I'm like, well, you're basically just reinforcing the fact that I was chronically anxious for the last four months. Right. 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 Exactly. And it almost feels like, like sometimes in society, people don't, it's like the, the means justify the end. Right. Is that the same or right? No, the end justifies the means. Yes. Like people don't care how you got there as long as you got there, right? And you're like, dude, I had to kill myself to get there. And they're like, but you look good, right? And you're like, yeah, there's there's a cost here that matters, right? Right, right, exactly. And like, what is your quality of life, right? Like, yeah. we think about health, we think about physical health, or we think about nutrition. Like, when people think about health, they feel like they think about exercise and what they consume. Mm-hmm. But health is so much broader than that. When you look at the wellness wheel, like, how is your sleep? How is your stress? How is your occupational health? Like there are so many different pieces of health and wellness. And we hyper focus on just those two things, but ignore everything else. Like I would argue that if you're chronically stressed, but your BMI is normal in the normal range, like you're not healthy, but we don't look at it that way. And it's like such a skewed way to analyze our health. Right. I mean, how are your relationships? You know, I mean, that's such a big, that's such a big piece of your well-being you know, and yet right. when I was at my leanest, I was like a starving animal and, and, and probably, and probably it was like living with a starving, starving animal, right? Like for my kids and right. my partner at the time, it was just like probably scary. You know, I remember the kids would like come up and ask me for a bite of whatever I was eating. And I was like, I already weighed it, you know, like they just stop asking, like, don't ask mom for a bite. She weighed it. And like, I needed to get every gram, you know, of that, that meal in. And I was probably scary, you know, so they... Yeah, you just think like, what was that? We'd go out to ice cream and I'd just sit and watch them eat ice cream. It was so sad. I think back and I just think I'm, I, it was just a sad way to live. 
but or and I was meeting all of these sort of fitness goals you know but sometimes you have to do the wrong thing to know what's the right thing for you right like you have to kind of go through that but yes that I agree with you it's not a measure of health at all right and it's certainly not sustainable what are your response like what are the biggest criticisms of intuitive eating and like what would be your response like what if people said you know people think oh yeah, well that doesn't work because I'll I'll intuitively eat a dozen donuts, you know, or I, what if somebody really needs to lose weight to to be within like a healthy range and they're thinking, well, this is not going to work for them. What's your response to those like main criticisms? Yeah. The main thing that I hear is always like intuitive eating is super irresponsible to promote as a coach because it doesn't have any regard for nutrition. And that's Mm -hmm. just so not true. I think what people do is honestly Google intuitive eating, read the first article that pops up, mm-hmm. take five minutes to read that article, and then truly believe that they're an expert on intuitive eating. Mm-hmm. And that's just dangerous for so many reasons, right? A little bit of knowledge is a very dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you actually learn about the 10 principles and you see how they all flow together, like, sure, if you truly wanted to eat five cupcakes and have at it, but there's probably not going to feel great after, right? Like if you're in tune with your body and you recognize hunger and fullness cues and you recognize how food tastes, like my guess is if you're eating by the third cupcake, my guess is it's not going to taste very good still, right? right? You're not going for after you eat that third cupcake, like you're going to be pretty uncomfortable. Like Mm -hmm. you're you're not going to want to do that again because you're probably not going to feel very well. So like by all means you could, but it's very unlikely that you're going to. Right. Um, So I think that kind of gets lost in translation a lot Mm -hmm. when people are looking at what intuitive eating actually is. And there's also a whole bunch of research when you look at like wanting to restrict certain foods. So if you Mm -hmm. tell yourself, well, I'm going to, you know, eat healthy and I'm not going to eat ice cream or cookies or chocolate. Like when you're in that deprived state, Mm -hmm. you're going to want that food even more. So with intuitive eating, when you can have access to ice cream and like, I can't tell you how many like treat quote unquote foods I have in my house because it's no different than having a carrot or a piece of chicken or mm-hmm. whatever. Like when I'm in the mood for ice cream, I have a scoop of ice cream and I'm satisfied and I move on with my day. It's yeah. not a big deal. Right. Well, the other thing it does is when you do fall off the wagon, like if you have a restricting mindset, you do fall off the wagon. My thought is, listen, I'm going to get my sins worth here. So I'm going to have five cookies instead of one because I've already messed up. So I am going to push myself so much harder, so much farther until I do feel sick because I'm like, tomorrow these aren't available to me anymore, right? So I'm going to put them all in today. Today's messed up and then start fresh tomorrow, right? And like that's creating this restrict and binge cycle that just feeds into itself. I mean, and this is what we're fighting. I mean, there's thousands of coaching programs out there that are just so based on restriction. And do you get results? Yes. And do you gain the weight back almost immediately and then also have all of these negative views of yourself because of it? Also, yes, right? Exactly. And that's never talked about is like, I don't doubt that certain diets work. Like I know that they work, but they're not sustainable long-term. And what I really disappoints me or upsets me is then no one talks about those clients afterwards. No No one talks about their mental health afterwards. And like, that's a big piece to ignore. Right. And like you said, that, that, um, last supper mentality, like I have to eat everything today or like exercising for repentance is is a big one. It's like, well, I'm going to eat a slice of pizza, but tomorrow I'm going to do a hit workout and lift. Like that's so unhealthy and so unhelpful, but that's what it creates. when we restrict these certain foods, it creates these patterns of repeated unhelpful behavior. Right. Exactly. 
Um, so really quickly, can you just talk a little bit about your services and kind of how people can find you and the sort of things that you have coming up for yourself? Sure. Yeah. So I offer one-to-one coaching and very small group coaching, two to three um, in, uh, groups of coaching. And my sessions are, my packages are typically either three months or six months. Um, I most active on social media. So my social media handle is small changes underscore coaching. Um, so I like try to post a lot of just little tips and tricks on intuitive eating on that website. And I also have a bunch of um, webinars coming out. Some of them are tailored more towards behavior analysts, but I also have some free webinars just on intuitive eating in general. If anyone wants to learn more about each of those 10 principles in more detail, um, you can figure out how to get access to that. And yeah, I think that's yes, pretty much it. And I will, I will put all of your stuff in my, you know, like your handle and ways to find you. I will put it in the show notes. Um, okay. The really amazing thing about Sarah is that she's a behavior analyst just like me. And so everything is really coming through that perspective of looking at behavior as data and being able to support people in a way that's sustainable over time and really systematic, right? Focused on systematically building good habits um, in a way that will be life-changing, right? Like you can know that after you're done working with someone, you've set them off, you, you've set them up to be better and healthier and and more psychologically well. You didn't just get them yeah. a quick 10 pound loss and it's like, okay, hey, go yeah. live the rest of your life. I have no idea how you're doing, but it's like, listen, I have helped shape your life and generations to come because now you are not passing this on. I mean, the value of what you're providing, it just, you can't even put a number on it because of the reach. It's just going to keep yeah. reaching right through the generations of kids that don't have to grow up believing that they're in, that they're insufficient because they have a, they're larger bodied or because they don't fit yeah. some societal norm. Totally. And I, that's what I always forget to mention too. It's like, that's what exactly what I say. Like I'm giving you the tools and the resources for you to have for the rest of your life. Yes. Like I always joke that after these three months are over, I, I want to keep in touch and I want to talk to you, but I also know if we never talk again, you'll be set, right? Yeah, like, yeah. so these tools are not just to use in the moment over the next three months, over the next six months. They truly are things that once are mastered, you can apply and generalize to every other setting in your life. So right. it's not a quick fix and no. it's not just this, you know, cookie cutter plan. It is totally individualized and the goal and, and the point of this coaching is to give you those resources that you have forever. Right. It's a mindset shift. And like you said, they can take it from this current domain of like food. They can apply this to work. They can apply this to parenting. All the techniques that you're teaching them, right, will generalize into their lives in all of the other ways. And so again, the reach is just, it's just hard to even quantify, right, what that looks like. Yes. So totally. it's so wonderful talking to you, Sarah. It's really great having this conversation. And I'm super excited to see behavior analysts doing such cool things and you know, for us to be such on the same page, you know, mindset wise. And I really appreciate you being here. Yeah. Thanks for having me on Amber. You know, I always love to chat with you. It's so good. And I really appreciate being able to be on this podcast. Thank you. Of course. Talk to you later. Thanks, Amber. <laughs>